Hey, South Bend City Church, Mariah here, the Director of Art and Worship. Thanks so much for joining us today for this special episode of the podcast. Back in August, we had the opportunity to have a parenting workshop led by Meredith Miller. Meredith is the author of Woven, Nurturing a Faith Your Child Doesn't Need to Heal From. We had the opportunity to talk about what parenting a child's faith journey can look like when parents are still figuring out what faith looks like for them. Whether faith is new for you or if you spent time deconstructing and reconstructing your faith, this was a great afternoon for us to learn and ask questions. We had the opportunity, with Meredith's blessing, to record this workshop. And so whether you want to revisit the conversation or whether you weren't able to be there in person, we hope that this time that we shared will be beneficial for you and your family moving forward. Thanks so much for joining us. Let's join in with Meredith and some of our community members now. So I'm Meredith Miller, and I uh, got involved in some research back in 2007 on kids and faith formation. I was in grad school at the time. I had been a kids pastor running our fourth to sixth grade room at the church that I grew up in and took my last year of seminary to link up with the Fuller Youth Institute, and they were in the middle of a research project. And I had been in kids ministry. Um, I taught my first lesson when I was like 16 and came from a church where kids did lots of stuff and kids were highly valued. And so I'd been doing that for a while, but kind of didn't want to get, um, <laughs> this is kind of funny now, I didn't want to get pigeonholed into the kid thing. <laughs> And so I was doing other stuff and we did this research project where we were interviewing youth group seniors, um, several hundred of them, and we were following them for three years from their senior year of high school into their first few years of college. And um, I became a research assistant for that project. And a couple of years in the mix, we got to this point where we were looking at some open-ended answers that kids have been able to write in about the way their faith had changed over the college transition. And they start writing and fundamentally, they are doing, on the positive side, a really cool thing, which is their view of God got much, much bigger. On the less positive side, at least confusing side, was the number of them that felt like that bigger God was really hard to figure out. Like, I don't know what to do with this. I don't know what to do with my faith. And a lot of them were describing what was coming up as like the big thing in the 2000s, which was the idea that fundamentally they thought their faith was moralistic, right? Like they're just supposed to be good kids. And I remember where I was in the research room as we were unpacking all this stuff and I was like, oh yeah, Sunday school, Sunday school set them up for that. Sorry, our bad. Because at the time, especially, everything for kids was about being a good kid. Everything's about being a good kid, right? And everything we were doing as a Sunday school program was oriented around, like, what are you going to do next? And how are you going to respond to that? And, like, how are you going to go live this out? And we were giving kids what would become the lists of how to be a good kid that they would feel like they were supposed to manage all the way through their teen years until they hit this point in this project where they were revealing, like, I'm really stinking exhausted of all this list management. Or I can't do it. And I think that probably means God likes me less because there's no grace in that system. And so that was 15-ish years ago. And then I had the fun of just staying more or less involved in kids and family ministry in some big churches um, up until a few years ago when we moved back home to California. And now we have a teeny tiny little church that is a ton of fun. Um, and I started writing on the internet for my friends when their churches started sending home curriculum during the closure time of the pandemic. And, um, and my, my friends 
they always knew what my job was. It was like, yeah, that's neat. You do kids things. Uh, and this was the first time they cared <laughs> in, in the best way. They were like, what in the whiskers is happening? Because there was this curriculum coming home from these big publishing companies in the U.S. And it's like all this go be a good kid stuff. And they're like, where was the Bible story? Like, why are there funny cartoons telling my kids these weird things? And like, what? What? And so I started writing for them. Um, and then the internet's weird. And so now I start writing for lots of extra people. And it's very fun. Um, but what I'd love for us to do is we're going to spend <laughs> half an hour, maybe, walking through some basics on what we do when it comes to raising kids in faith. And then we're going to have a big old chunk of time for questions. So if you have questions, cue them up. If you didn't think about questions, you have a little time to prep them. But part of the fun of doing this workshop style is that we actually get to talk through stuff that's more specific and contextual, right? And so there's these big themes, and we'll walk through those together. But you're the one who knows the kids in your life, and you are the one that has specific things that you're thinking through and things that you're reshaping. And so we're going to give all, you know, a huge, huge chunk of our time together to open Q&A, um, especially because my experience has been, like, very few questions are really just like you. I mean, maybe there is. I think you guys probably have good judgment about, like, no, ours really is just us. Okay, we can, like, chat after. I'll be here a little bit. But, like, most of the time, if you're like, I don't know what to do with that story, like, yeah, every, everyone's had that too, right? Like, I don't know what we do with, yeah. My mother-in-law, yeah, no, like, everybody. <laughs> so, um, so do feel free in that because a lot of what we're trying to navigate is really similar with one another, um, and that's the space that we can most explore. So let's dive in. Um, I think that for many of us, if we were raised in some sort of church religious space, which how many of you have some sort of churchy background? A lot of us, and it's fine if you don't, I just was more curious. Um, if we're raised in churchy space, the adults from that experience, our parents or Sunday school teachers or pastors or whoever else, it's a lot like they helped us pack a suitcase, right? Like we're a kid and we got our little suitcase and they're like packing it full of things that they think we need, right? So here's these Bible stories you need to know. And here's how to pray. And here's how to like love others. And here's how to like give your money and all these different practices and ideas and Here's, you know, the doctrine of the Trinity. And, like, you pack it all up. And you zip it up. And those adults are like, here you go. Your faith is all packed up. You're ready to go. And then we grow up. And we start experiencing more and more of life. And what we might find is that some of the stuff in that suitcase was helpful. Helped us figure out how to make a decision or navigate a challenging situation. Engage with something important. But then we probably will find in our adult world that there is some stuff in that bag that we don't so much find helpful. Uh, in fact, it might be a little bit harmful, depending on where you come from or what you experienced. And so we have this time with our suitcase where it's like, okay, um, I kind of want to unpack this a little bit. But if you then are parenting, you also have like this little person and they have a suitcase. And you're like, oh, I got to help them pack that. I don't, I don't want to put that in there. That, mm, no, I don't, okay. Um, I have no idea what's on the packing list for them anymore. Do I, do I send that over? Do I, do I burn that? Do I, what? And then we get especially nervous about like, don't look, kid. 
I just, I got some stuff back here, but don't watch while I try and figure it out because we're afraid that while we're trying to figure out what to do with the things that were packed in our faith suitcase over the years, as we unpack that and relook at it, we're afraid that we're somehow going to give them our baggage. And we don't want to give them our baggage. And so we're not so sure what we do with our own faith while we have to then raise small humans in real time. But I think there is a way for us to be thinking through how we help a kid pack well, even while we might be doing some resorting of our own, right? When we moved home from Chicago, got back to California, I still had my coat, my nice little, like, I had the calf length kind because I was a total wimp, right? So, like, it was the huge sleeping bag <laughs> from Land's End. And I still had my boots because everyone says, as soon as you get here, you get Sorrel boots. And so I got my, got my boots, I got my giant coat, and... We get back to California, and there's a point in the move where I got this stinking coat. It, it doesn't get below 50 where I live, <laughs> like ever. I mean, I guess it could be 30 at night. And I remember distinctly a point where my kids like see me and I've got this coat. And it, it's that moment where it's like, all I'm gonna say to them about the coat is, well, yeah, I needed a winter coat in Chicago. We don't need a winter coat in California. So like, I'm just gonna, Put it away now. What I hope we can come to is a sense of when we're helping our own kids pack and we're undoing our own stuff, explaining changing faith and what we're doing over here with our stuff and what we're doing together as a family can be as low-key as, yeah, I used to need that. Or someone gave it to me and thought I needed it, but I don't anymore. And that's okay. And that's part of how we can then walk with our kids into something new and something that we're building together. And so, a lot of how we talk about this um, in the book is actually related more to a spider web, and we'll get there in a second, but I don't like spiders that much, so I don't want to talk about them as long if I don't have to. So here's our big question is, what fundamentally then is Christian parenting? And there are spaces that are like really ready to answer that for you, right? And normally their answer is that Christian parenting is raising kids to love and obey Jesus, Right, that fundamentally the goal is to have kids who follow Jesus and express that following in obedient sorts of ways. Or there's an alternative answer to that. One that I would like to advocate for with us together, which is that the goal of Christian parenting is to be with our kids as they get to know God and discover if God can be trusted to be with our kids as they get to know God and discover if God can be trusted. So you end up with these kind of two different options. There's an obedience training paradigm where we totally know that what we're supposed to do is obey God and therefore we can tell kids what obedience looks like and sounds like and feels like and smells like and all these things are already prescribed to them and so we give it to them and we train them in that. And obedience training paradigm sort of promise that if you do that for kids, um, God's like blessings because it's the right thing will be so evident in the child's life that they will like backfill into trust. That's sort of the like negotiated agreement in an obedience training paradigm. Somehow it pays off. If you come over to a trust-based paradigm, we're gonna be with our kids as they get to know God and discover God can be trusted. What you're saying is, I'm most of all interested in helping you meet this person. This person you can know. This person whose story is in scripture. This person that we've experienced in our faith community, in our family, and in my life. I think if you have the time to get to know them, you'll find they're trustworthy. I think if you were to choose to trust them, it could shape your life in some incredibly important ways. But we don't tell them before they've even gotten to know the person what it looks like and sounds like and feels like because they don't know them yet. 
And I'd love for you to think through, have you ever, maybe literally ever, done something because someone else told you to if you did not trust that person? Ever. Made a change, tried a new sandwich, cut your hair. We don't do things because we're told to unless we trust the person who's telling us because they have some sort of expertise or insight or wisdom or character or they love us. We don't make changes without trust. And so it's this banana pants thing that we've done with kids where we say, oh, but with God, you don't need to grow in trust. You don't need to just, I just do what I say about this. Do what God says about this because it's obedience and because it's God. And we don't let them build any trust, but we keep asking them for behaviors. It's totally backwards to ask a kid to obey a God they don't know. You have to have childhood be devoted to getting to know God so they can discover if God can be trusted. And what you find then is out of these two different paradigms, you see a lot of things like flow from them, kind of a downstream effect. And so if you operate out of an obedience training paradigm, there's certain expectations around behavior, for instance, right? That obedient behavior is a sign, a marker of a child's discipleship. They know kind of what the do's and don't lists are. Um, they know that every, like everything that is or is not a sin. On the other hand, if you operate out of a trust-based paradigm, then when it comes to behavior, we're looking at, can my child grow in wisdom, in the ability to discern choices? Can my child take their time and practice things imperfectly because there's enough grace for that and we can mend and forgive? Am I helping my child understand that God has this dream of a world that works in a way that matches who God is and that they can be part of it, that that's where they get to invest their life energy? It's kingdom-minded. Same kind of thing will happen with the Bible. If you have this obedience training paradigm, then when I come to the Bible... I'm always looking at the humans. Did they obey or not? And therefore, should I copy them or not? And we tell stories accordingly. And when you come to a trust-based paradigm, you come to Scripture, and you'd say, God's the main character of this story. So what do we learn about who God is or what God's like? And then the humans get to be like regular, plain humans who do some things well and some things not, who trust and sometimes don't, who are asking the same things we're all asking, which is like, yeah, but really, can this God be trusted? And how's that going to work? And am I going to notice this God with me? And so on. So once we start with this whole idea of what is Christian parenting and what is its goal, you see that operating out of an obedience training paradigm versus a trust-based paradigm are going to take you into totally radically different spaces when it comes to the way we're going to approach the Bible and the behaviors we're going to be inviting our kids into and how we tell our Christian story. So I'd love to give you a little uh, example, although you've probably heard this a little bit, but I actually happened to have, this is um, some sweet little preschool in Santa Barbara asked me to come on out, and this was their curriculum um, for young children. So this is Abraham and Isaac um, for three-year-olds, which is its own choice. All right, so I won't read you the whole thing, although it's kind of short, but here's how they're telling Abraham and Isaac. God wanted Abraham to trust him completely. So it's interesting because they picked the trust word. God asked Abraham for a present. Back then, people would give God animals as presents, but God didn't ask for an animal. God asked Abraham to give his favorite thing in the world, his son Isaac. 
Even though Abraham didn't understand why God wanted his son, Abraham knew that God loved him and had a plan, so Abraham listened to God. Right? So we're going to be like Abraham, who's listening. Abraham and Isaac went on a journey to the place where Abraham was going to give God his son. And when they got there, Isaac asked his father where the animal was that they were going to give to God. This made Abraham sad. He hadn't told Isaac yet that he was going to give him to God. When Abraham told Isaac, Isaac didn't understand, but he knew Abraham loved him. Isaac trusted God. Also, not in the story. Together, they got Isaac all ready to give to God. They tied Isaac up. Abraham and Isaac were getting ready to say goodbye forever. As they were getting ready, God said, Abraham, stop. You don't have to give me your son. I just wanted to make sure you trusted me. Which sounds really arbitrary. Abraham stopped and untied Isaac and gave him a big hug. Just then, Abraham and Isaac heard an animal next to them in the bushes. They caught it and gave it to God instead of giving God Isaac. Application. Sometimes God asks us to do things that don't make sense. But we can trust him because he loves us and always has a plan. Now, of course we can trust. But also, um, so many things. <laughs> At some point, the kid will realize that you said give as a euphemism for kill. And be like, wait, what? Right? At some point, they're going to realize that it makes God seem really arbitrary in what God is asking. Like, just wanted to see how you're feeling. Or uh, you can come to that very same story and say, if my goal is not to get my kid to obey God like Abraham was willing to obey or to obey like Isaac was willing to obey, to listen and do what God says. If instead I'm saying, okay, who's God in the story and I'm helping my kid get to know God, then even a story as hard as Abraham and Isaac, which I'm not necessarily saying you would tell young kids, but if you are trying to enter into that story, you end up with something entirely different that sounds like uh, God has invited Abraham to start a new family. This family is going to love each other and live in a way together that sort of echoes who God is. The whole world would know more about who God is by the way this family loved and treated each other. And God promised Abraham a son, and his name was Isaac. But then one day, God asked Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. Now, Abraham and God were getting to know each other. And all around Abraham, there were these other nations, and they had gods too. Gods like war and rain gods who made the sun shine on the crops and the rivers flow. Those gods asked people to sacrifice their children. And so when God asked Abraham, Abraham probably thought, that tracks. This is what we do. This is how we please our gods. And so Abraham goes on and brings Isaac. But we have to get to the point where God stops him. Right? The story is not Abraham sacrificed Isaac. The story is God had made sure Abraham did not sacrifice Isaac because our God, this God, does not ask us to sacrifice our children in order to care for us. If you are trying to figure out what it means to be ancient Israel in a nation that sacrifices your children, this is the story you tell over and over again to say our God does not ask us to sacrifice our children. Our God will send rain. Our God will send sun. Our God will feed us because our God loves us, not because we do these kinds of things. Pretty different story. Now again, second question of whether or not a kid should hear it, 
I'm still gonna vote no. I'm gonna vote you skip and save it until they're at an age where they can hear that version, right? But everything goes a whole different way when you say, what does this story tell us about who God is and what God's like? This story tells us that Yahweh God of Israel does not ask for child sacrifice in a world that does all sorts of ridiculous, harmful things out of superstition to please the gods, the nations. Our God is a life-giving God, a protector of children. And it's a whole different thing that happens out of that. And so when we come from a trust-based paradigm, we say we're going to be with our kids as they get to know God and discover if God can be trusted. We're going to not talk about their behavior as always sin or not sin. We're going to talk about how they're invited to live in the kingdom. And we're going to come to the Bible telling stories where we say, what do we notice about who God is and what God's like? And let the people be regular people. In other words, we get to sort of weave something like a spider web. And that's the main metaphor I chose for the book because... What a spider does when they weave a web is they have these anchor threads. They like affix to different points and they give it a lot of strength. They have sort of this necessary tension as well that kind of creates the stabilization the spider web needs. But then they have these internal threads that give the like unique texture and sort of its own beauty to the way any individual web would look. What we're helping our kids do, what we're doing in our families is weaving a web of faith. We anchor to who God is. There's all sorts of attributes that you choose from in that way. And then you have habits and practices and rhythms and traditions and rituals that are all your own. They get to look the way your family looks based on the kids that you guys actually have and like the people you actually are and the stuff you actually like and the personalities they actually have. Right? And so my family and your family, they don't look remotely alike and that's okay because we can be following Jesus into the world together, each as the families that we are. Hoping that our kids have the chance through all of that then to get to know God from there. So, I wanna just give a couple examples of what this might look like. If you imagine that what you're gonna do is anchor to who God is, you could take an attribute of God like justice, right? And we say, okay, we have a God who loves justice. That's what we're trying to anchor to. That's an important piece of this web. And then you have a kid who's an animal lover, okay? Well, then that might mean there's like this adorable little podcast that is produced out of Canada called Earth Ranger Emma. Any of you know this one? Your kids know it? It's adorable. Earth Ranger Emma is this very fun animal podcast, and then it has like all these conservation efforts that come out of it, which means part of the way you might anchor to a God who is just is having internal threads of we listen to Earth Ranger Emma, and we've joined this thing, and we do these cute little earth projects that remind us to care for creation. But also... Another family could have a web of faith where they say, we want to anchor to a God who is just, but our kid is like a budding baker. They love to get in the kitchen. They want to make stuff. And part of your internal threads is that you become a family that composts. All those eggshells, all that stuff. And you help make the connection between the way we talk about stewardship and sustainability. If they do brownies, you figure out how to find ethical chocolate and talk together about what that means. If you have a baker, they're always sourcing ingredients and you can talk about communities that have different levels of access to different kinds of resources and why is that? Even as we can find what we need, perhaps. And so you have the same value of who our God is and that you have a totally unique set of practices that help bring it to life, right? Or we could take another attribute of God, we could take this morning's joy, right? And so now we wanna to anchor to a God who's joyful. 
And this time, we'll think more about the idea that like, maybe I want some experiences that help with that. So a family could, here at South Bend City Church, say, okay, if we want to think about how God is joyful, every fifth Sunday is an all-family church. So we're going to never miss that. And then we're going to add on like our favorite spot to eat afterwards. And we're going to turn fifth Sundays into like super fun family day. That's just going to be one of the experiences our kids have. But you could take the same trait of a God who's joyful and say, okay, let's think about like traditions something that's gonna happen more regularly. We're gonna build out the way we celebrate birthdays because of our God who's joyful. And we're gonna make sure every birthday we go real big so that joy comes to life in our family. Same trait, different internal threads. So here's what I'd love for you to do because I think you have a notebook. I would like for you to draw a spider web if you please. It can be any kind of web you want. There's funnel webs and there's tangle webs and there's orb webs. I learned all of this from my kid when he was three because his preschool teacher was obsessed with spiders every October. She did a whole unit on it. Draw yourself a little spider web if you would. Okay, and then um, you, if you came with somebody who is part of your parenting team, do this in a conversation. If you're on your own, then great. I would love for you to think through, what are some of the attributes of God that you are particularly interested in your kid, like, experiencing or understanding? There's so many on the list. It's not like a right or wrong per se. But when you think about who God is, what are some of the attributes you most want the kids in your life to know. And put those on the outer anchor points of the web that you drew. So they go around the outside because these are the anchor points, who God is. You could have as few or as many as you want. What attributes of God do you want the kids in your life to most know? Again, if you came with someone, you guys can chat. We don't have to be all quiet like. Okay, and then somewhere if you're a note type of person who likes to remember this, or if not, it'll be in the book if you ever decide to look there as well. But here's what I'd love to give you. There are four basic categories that help you go from those anchor threads, those attributes that are particularly important to you, to an actual full web of faith that is your own family's culture and habits and style and expression. It's rituals and traditions. So these are like marked by their repetition, whatever the frequency would be. Rituals are relatively high-frequency kinds of things. They often go with things like sending a kid off for school for the day or bringing them home, bedtime meals, those kinds of things. Traditions tend to be a little lower frequency, but they cycle. Birthdays, holidays, family traditions that you've cultivated for yourself, okay? But they're kind of one linked category that are part of how these kinds of attributes come to life. The other big bucket is experiences. The main thing about an experience as opposed to a ritual tradition is about frequency. Experiences might only happen once in their childhood, but they were super important. It might be like we do a family reunion every so many years. And so it's not necessarily going to happen all the time, but that experience is important. The experience of being part of a faith community, right, to have grown up in a certain kind of church, and this is what it was like, that would be an experience kind of a thing, okay? The third is relationship. So the big marker when it comes to relationships and kids and faith is about quantity. Like more is more, assuming that person is not um, damaging. 
<laughs> but there's like a pretty broad bucket of helpful and more is more. So um, Chap Clark, Kenda Creasy Dean, some other folks, they were looking a lot at faith formation and the role that intergenerational relationships play. Um, and this idea of a young person being known by people outside their generation, it's like the single most important relational factor in faith, like carrying on with people, is having like a group around them. So fundamentally, their finding was, if you want an important message to stick with a kid over the long haul, you need at least five adults sending that same message to them for a very long period of time. So if a kid is lucky enough to have two parents who are aligned on core messages like, you are loved no matter what, there's always grace for things, they don't have to be perfect, um, you were made with care in God's own image. If you're lucky enough to have two as a family, you still need at least three more if you're hoping that really hits home with a kid. They need a collection of faith cheerleaders around them. And this can be um, family members, this can be church community members, this can be coaches, this can be teachers, this can be family. Like, it doesn't really matter where they come from. But this idea that you have a team around them, that's a huge piece of this. And then the fourth that's super important is um, the chance to explore scripture, Bible exploration. That if all of this is not tethered to a driving story that gets sort of treated as sacred and informing us about who God is, it devolves very quickly back to that moralistic stuff again. It kind of becomes a whole like character formation plan without being connected to a person. And so the chance to explore scripture becomes huge because if they aren't helped in exploring scripture young, I don't know if y'all know this, but the Bible's kind of confusing. And without help, then they'll, they'll read it on their own. And that is not a good idea. <laughs> In fact, that's never really been how we've meant to use the Bible until relatively recently when the printing press gave it to us, and that's lovely, but it's also almost always been a communal story to be read and explored and imagined and discussed as groups too. And kids especially need the help to engage not only what's in it, but how to make meaning of it and discover who God is within it. Those big four things. There are so many lovely ways you could bring those to life. So if you have those attributes on the outside, these are the four that you can circle back sometime after this and say, okay, how could I go from this attribute using one of those four things to mark an internal thread for what our family's web looks like, right? And so, um, as I said this morning, like we as a family are um, real big on the joy thing and we have annual Disneyland passes and we go kind of a darn lot. But along with that, we have another anchor of I want kids to understand a God who wants flourishing for all. And Disneyland is a pretty darn privileged experience. And so we are also weaving in a whole lot of practices now that my kids are 8 and 10 around understanding equity and access and privilege, around understanding what it looks like to be neighboring without trying to be like saviors. And it's kind of hard because both of my children look like tiny Ken dolls but we need both. And so when I sort of imagine our family's web, we have joy and justice almost living as like the two tension points on the wire. That we don't need to sacrifice the stuff that's fun and creates family warmth, but we also are never gonna quit on wanting that for everyone, right? Shannon Martin is a writer um, over in Goshen, you may know her, and she talks a lot uh, recently about the idea that if something's a blessing, then it's for everybody that we've had a lot of blessing language around the stuff that I really like, but if it's a blessing, it's for everybody, right? And so that's one of the things that our family is working on figuring out 
How do we live into shared spaces and expanding spaces? So that would be kind of the thing you can be thinking through because probably you are already doing more right than you're giving yourself credit for. I think that's what happens when you go back to the suitcase thing where you're like, this is kind of a big tangled mess and then I'm supposed to help my kid do this other thing over here. And so then you think, I have no idea what to do, but probably you are doing more right than you think you are already, just being the family that you are. So um, I'm going to pause and we're going to come back in a little while to talk about if you have a spider web, sometimes there's stress and breakage and we'll get back into what happens there. But before I do that, Let's do questions, yeah? Because I've talked for a long time, and so we need to go back and forth a little more. All right. What can we talk about together? It can be about any of this that I just shared. It could be about anything else related to kids, faith, the Bible, in-laws, etc. Yeah, so um, for those who couldn't hear, two kiddos, dad is Jehovah's Witness and baptized into that, but not with uh, a sense of choice or agency. It was a coerced thing. So how do you navigate co-parenting and faith when you've got two very different systems and some lack of agency in the middle of it? Yeah, that's summary, yeah. Um, co-parenting can be so challenging, and if you're not necessarily aligned. I think some of what you start with is where can the parents find mutual respect and alignment together? So there's conversations that you're having with your co-parent about what do you think we should say to them about this? You know, how, like, are you okay if I were telling them Bible stories? Would that feel okay to you? Um, do you want to see the, the list of stories I might tell them ahead of time? Here's, the, I, I, I could, Here's the ones I was thinking I might do with them over bedtime over the next little while. Does that feel all right to you? Um, and so there's these conversations about if, if they ask me something about what you believe, like is there anything you do or don't want me to say when I represent your experience? Like how can I align with you and how we describe where you come from? Um, that you sort out some of the mutual respect that you'll have about your stories, you know, and what gets said there. Um, some of it, at times, can be, can you, can it work, will it work for you all to do the lots of people who love Jesus think differently about this? Um, that, or like lots of people who are trying to understand God think differently about what that means. And so I understand God to be this way, and this is kind of why, but there are groups that understand God in some different sorts of ways. And what's important for us is to always be kind and respectful and curious about the different things that we might think. Um, so that what you want to try and avoid is a sense in young kids that they have to choose between beloved people in order to receive approval. And so being able to navigate with the adults that whatever we're going to say we don't want our kids thinking that we're only happy with them if they agree with us. And that's true whether it's navigating that we've got two different 
understandings of God coming into the family, or even if it's just me hoping my kid loves Jesus, trying to untether the part that is them responding because it'll make me happy. Because developmentally, kids will do the things that make the adults that care for them happy. This is how they stay safe, and this is how attachment works, right? Is they're going to mirror back what they think they need to say because the adult is the one who cares for them. And so the more whenever faith types of things talk about the, like, I think this, or your father thinks this, and you get to grow up and keep learning, and you'll get to decide for yourself too um, so that you keep the ideas belonging to who they belong to. And just naming that outright can be a helpful piece too. But it's challenging. And I think um, giving space for that that it doesn't have to be like all sorted out. Because I think sometimes too the idea is we have to decide everything about the system of belief we're going to raise our kid in. But I think you could also say that part of the trust-based paradigm is I think that if God is who they are, I can trust God, I can trust God in their love for my kid and that we've got time as we're trying to help our kids get to know this God. That... Um, if God is who I think God is, then the truth of that surfaces over time. It doesn't have to get forced down, you know, and locked in. Because um, that's part of grace too, which is hard. But I think that's also part of it is we, we aren't just trying to raise our kids out of a trust-based paradigm. We are trying to parent from trust in God on their behalf too. Yeah, it's a great question. What else? Mm-hmm. Um, I wasn't really raised, you know, but my background's all um, evangelical. And so we ended up putting our kids in a Catholic school after a few years of navigating the public schools around here. And that's, it's really hard for me because there's a lot of things I, there's a, in Catholicism that is just hard, and they tend to be a very good, moralistic, like everything that I'm <laughs> trying to not teach myself in this. Which is fine because our kids come home and we have conversations about stuff that they talk about in religion class and stuff. But my question is, how do then I empower them in those spaces to then be bearers of God's goodness in Mm. those spaces? Mm -hmm. Because, like, you know, there are children in those communities that are LGBTQ. It's just, it is just, you know, they they exist. I want my our children to be like a safe space Mm -hmm. for some of those kids and some of those conversations. Um, I'm going to repeat one because we're recording for people who can't be here and just in case you didn't hear. So uh, as a family, the best option for schooling is a private Catholic school. Um, And yet that isn't their understanding of how faith would work and the school is working in a pretty moralistic framework that they're kind of trying to break away from. But in particular, the question was, they're 9 and 12 now. How do you empower your kids as they are in that space to welcome in others who might not be in that system as well to be a safe friend to others who are maybe not experiencing that culture in a good way, um, to know that it's okay to not necessarily fall in line with that part of the culture of the school. Um, And I think 
part of it is, again, you have a team of caring adults. So assuming the teachers are kind, even as they're maybe asking for us to all be nice and good and sit just so, now we've got a team of caring adults in the life of a child. That's a good thing. We like this. We like lots of caring adults that are creating our school environment for our kids, which means our first priority is not having whatever empowerment we're doing make it seem like they have to go against a caring adult in order to enact that sort of thing. So that's one piece. One piece is the same thing. The, so lots of people who love Jesus think differently about lots of things. And the more they're around of just, we just have really different understandings on some of these kinds of things that you're already in ongoing conversation about. So that's just a normal thing to expect. We don't all agree on this stuff. And to be adding in the layers of like, but we love them and we don't have to like change how we relate to and respond to. That's totally fine. And then the more they get older, the more you can also say, but sometimes the things we disagree about matter a lot because they hurt people God loves. And so when you find that you are realizing that somebody might get hurt, like you get to step in and be someone who has some courage and is kind and shows that love. And then practically speaking, you script it. So you might find that somebody is in this situation and you can say, and you give them like a one sentence line that you think would be realistic for how they could respond to someone. So you might meet friends who um, come out to you, but maybe they're not out to teachers and you get to say, I'm so glad you told me. I love knowing that about you or whatever that first line would be. Um, or you might notice that a teacher, I don't know this would happen, but perhaps like treat somebody in a way that feels uh, to you. You can trust yourself and you can tell us and we'll figure out what we do next. Or, you know, like, so you can anticipate the situations that are sticky and do an if then. If this ever comes up, you can do this other thing whether that's circling back to you all or having a way they speak up or a person within the school community that you think they could go like relay that to, but you just start role-playing what it could look like. Um, because it's a, it's a lot like a lot of these other kinds of topics where you're front-loading it so that if it comes up, then you're trying to mitigate the idea of like, I don't know what to do or I feel embarrassed or, oh, is this okay? Or what's gonna, how will I be, like, how will you guys feel when that story comes home? You're front loading like, we're just gonna be there with you. We'll figure it out. Because we've already named that we're in a setting where we interpret some things differently. And what's most important to us is to be loving in ways because of who our God is. Yeah. So I would literally list like, what do you guys think are the top five to seven likely things for which they would need to be equipped and like the one action that you think would be, and you can do that also based on your kid's personality, right? So like I have one kid that's a speaker upper and I have one kid who is not a speaker upper, right? And so like how to navigate something would be different, right? In our, in our case, as the, for instance, um, we have encouraged our kids to not say the Pledge of Allegiance um, because if you have to choose between Jesus and the U.S., we choose Jesus. And so we can be grateful without saying we're allegiant. Allegiance always only can go to one place. That is part of our family's culture. I'm not asking y'all to show you that. But you're in a culture, we're in a public school system where we don't know how a teacher's going to feel about that, right? So we're like, you just please stand quietly. Please don't distract others. Please don't 
Like, it doesn't matter what anyone else chooses. And you can say it if you want to, but we don't, and that's okay. But knowing that we have different teachers with different degrees of response to that. Um, so we have one that we know, if they ask, you can just say, oh, I just don't happen to say it. And we have another where we knew we had to say, like, if it comes up, just let us know, and then we'll figure out what to do tomorrow together. Because they weren't going to say anything. Like, the idea that that would come up would be the worst thing in the world. So I think being able to tailor to the kid you have is huge. What else? I have a question about maybe we have little wills. <laughs> Okay, so two uh, options for beginning. And they kind of probably are both at, at once. One is you have what we do with the Bible, and I'll come back to that in just a minute. But also the where to begin includes, like this is where the ritual tradition experience relationship side comes in. Because for some kids, where you actually begin is more through like the way your family is living out the love of God in these different ways. So you might have like a bedtime ritual and... You've created that based on like your kids and what feels good to you. And that's the, if that's a prayer or if that's a one-line little blessing or if that's a story or if that's a whatever. But that's always a time that you're closing the day with warmth, right? You always want to send your kid to bed just feeling loved. And so those pieces are also part of the beginning, right? Where it's like there's maybe just simple phrases or practices that um, are orienting your kid to like, oh, we live our life as a family in the love of God. Um, so that's one piece is that that counts as beginning. Bible specifically, um, any kid five and under, the way you're going to filter what stories you tell them is whether or not that story helps the kid see that God is good. That's your big attribute. On your web, God is good is your anchor point. And that's where you start all young kids. And honestly, even older kids, if they haven't had a chance to get to know God and they're kind of new to it, goodness is the attribute you start with. Because until you have a pretty rooted sense that God is good, you can't really get into anything else that's more complex about God's character very well without it becoming particularly confusing. And everything flows out of this idea. And so if you have a kid's Bible, you can simply comb the stories and say, okay, God is good because, and if you can finish that sentence with something that happened in the story, it's a great one to tell, just get started. So um, Paul and Silas in prison, God is good because God heard their prayers. And there's like an earthquake and that's kind of fun and they, you know, out they go from jail. Or um, creation, right? God is good because God made a good world. And little kids, you can spend forever in creation. God made my hands and feet. God made my eyes and ears. God made my mouth and nose. And you can do all kinds of sensory fun play like that, right? Um, Jesus and the wedding in Cana, right? Like God is good because God is joyful, and so if you can finish that sentence, that's your story filter. There are other attributes of God in other stories that are important, but those are for older ages or later stages as they've kind of gotten their bearings in other ways. And sometimes there are stories where you see God's goodness 
and many stories in the Bible. God is multiple things at once. It's actually what's really fun is as kids get older, you can tell, ask them the question, like, hey, what did you notice about who God is or what God's like? And they'll fill in attributes that they saw on display in the story because it's not one right answer. It's like a multiples. But yeah, filter through, especially when they can't read. That's the best part because if you have a children's Bible, you basically like, but they can't read the words. And you can also change them. I don't know if you knew this. You don't have to read the words on the page, you guys. This is not the book with no pictures. You can change them. This is what I did with the one kid's Bible I basically liked until my kids could read and then out it went. So I feel you on that. Um, I do not have a children's Bible recommendation. I hate them all. Um, <laughs> so, except, no, oh, and this is another one. If you have very little kids, there is a cute little Bible. Did you find it? Could we find it? Is it existing in the world? There used to be a Bible for sale that I think is still on the internet. The, the internet's supposed to do this. It's called the Baby Bible, specifically stories about Jesus. Okay? There's a whole bunch of baby Bibles. There's the baby Bible for girls. I don't understand what two-year-old girls need to hear about Jesus, that two-year-old boys want to I, I don't know. Whatever. Stories about Jesus. It is a wonderful little board book Bible. It worked in our family until our kids were like four. So that is, that is one of my few. Um, and you can work with lots of, you can work with lots of them because you can change the words. Yes. Um, and I guess that, that could be really specific to us, but if you have recommendations on do we go where he's leading us? Yep. Do we use our own intuition on what to stop? Yeah, how far do you go with a curious question-asking kid uh, based on following their lead versus, you know, what you know as an adult in complicated situations? And age is such a big part of that, actually. Like, saying seven is super helpful because that's different than what the answer might be when they're 10, right? And probably have the same personality because they are who they are, but what they can receive and how they can process it becomes different. Um, and so the younger they are, the more I would trust what you think is actually the limit of the answers, even if it's unsatisfying. Because just in terms of brain development, there's going to hit a max capacity where even if you're saying an exact right answer, how that's going to get received or sorted out you're just less likely to land where you'd hope to land and more likely to have things kind of turn sideways just because of their age, no matter how bright and curious and no matter how wonderfully crafted the answer. Um, and the older they get, the more you can continue to follow their lead because they're just their whole capacity reflects that growth and development. Um, and then I think that that sometimes means it's helpful to have like a, I see you that you want more answer from me and I know we're stopping now and that that's kind of frustrating, but I promise we'll keep talking about this stuff. It's not like the only time we're going to do it or whatever version of we are going to stop, but we're not done. Those are different. And 
that we'll keep talking about as things get, get going. Um, or even like, there's more to the answer, and I know you want me to talk this through with you, but I promise you it would be more confusing and make it feel worse. Which is my kid, for instance, where there's certain stories where it's like, there's more to this. I will tell you as you're older. I promise you right now, it would just make all of this even more confusing. It's like we're waiting in the stream. It's going to make it all muddy. So those are great questions, and I love that you're asking, and we're going to keep talking, but we're going to pause this one for now. And you don't have to like it, right? Like that doesn't have to be satisfying to you, but it's still what we're going to do. And so having some sort of line that just, because it helps us, it helps me stay calm. I never have good words in the moment on that unless I like know where I'm going to land. But I think trust yourself when you're like, I feel like we're in a place that's further than we need to be. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but you're right. You're, you're right about what you know. So. Um, I really appreciate your packing illustration. Um, I feel like I have four-year-old boys, okay. and um, we're, they're asking lots of questions, which is fun. But I think I'm coming through and out of this, like, reconsidering of my faith phase. And so my suitcase is I want to leave all the over-spiritualization of life there because my life was filled with like platitudes and like just do it and you know all over spiritualizing like humanity and how we're living life and so my go-to is like we're doing our routine at night we're reading the bible that's our like spiritual time but I I don't really want that that's just kind of how I've compartmentalized what I'm working through with my kids and so I'm just curious, kind of in the same line of the questions that have been asked to you, like, how do, how do I incorporate, this is a big question, but, like, how do I incorporate, like, God and faith and all of these things that I want them to find joy in, in, like, everyday experiences without over-spiritualizing it? Or, yeah. like, uh, plat- the platitude piece of yeah. Mm-hmm. in ordinary life. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, how do you expand faith from a compartmentalized one practice at one time of the day into something more every day without it feeling like then every part of the day has to have like a biblical connection to count? <laughs> yeah. Um, and sometimes it is. That's a cool leaf. I love how God made leaves colorful. Sometimes. Like sometimes that one line... And letting it just be one line is how it feels ordinary. Instead of having to turn it into like, also I'm going to tell you the whole story of creation and also we're going to make a leaf collection and turn it into an art project and then we're going to write God made everything on the bottom. And like sometimes that's part of how it becomes more ordinary is it gets smaller. Um, And small but like sprinkled is part of where it feels like we live our lives as we follow Jesus. Some of it happens as kids grow. So the younger they are, the more this stuff tends to look like Bible time at night or maybe, you know, some sort of meal-based tradition or whatever kind of fits your kids. The more they grow, it's often when you start to then feel like the rest of their life starts to incorporate more things. And so I think one of the 
helpful habits can be to listen to your kids well, and when they are engaging with something that reminds you of a Bible story or reminds you of an attribute, in a real chill, normal sort of way, it's like, oh, you know, that kind of reminds me of a story. Do you mind if I tell it to you? Because there's like this Bible story where God does that, and it's super neat. It kind of reminded me of that thing you were saying. Because what you're doing is not spiritualizing their circumstance. You're helping them see that their circumstance that they are living their ordinary life in is spiritual because this world belongs to God. But some of that is like, that reminds me of something because that's just ordinary. My mind went there. Is it all right if I tell you a story? You're not going to hijack the conversation. You tell it short and then you just go with, back with like, cool, huh? And then it can be done and on it goes. But they need a little more life for those to be part of the ordinary things, right? They, as they start moving out into the world. I think too that... Um, we in family faith culture have sort of downplayed ordinary things that are actually surprisingly helpful when it comes to faith. We've sort of like elevated all things like Bible devotion, memory verse, prayer. But like a lot of the research stuff talks about the role, for instance, of cultivating family warmth, right? So um, in the same vein as that like kids need intergenerational relationship thing, family warmth uh, is like the, the big if you can do anything, like having your family like each other goes a long way to your kid being open to considering the kinds of things you think are important in the world. Who knew? And that includes faith. And so the stuff you do for fun, the stuff you do because it's on the to-do list and we're running errands together, this, like the stuff you do in your day, doing them in ways that build connection and respect and listening. Like, that is actually important to faith formation. Um, and you're never going to, like, say that to them, but you know. Like, the way our family feels is, and is part of what we're doing here. Um, and the ways, I mean, a big one is they grow. The tone of voice I use, right? Like, the more I practice speaking to my kid, in a way that shows that I respect them as a person. Okay, underneath all of that is, you are made in the image of God. You are inherently worthy of dignity and respect. This is how people treat one another, and we're practicing it now for how we go out in the world, right? There's a whole lot of theology under the choice. I speak to you respectfully, even though I am the adult and you are the kid. My tone to you is a reflection of a whole bunch of theological truths. And sometimes you might talk about it, maybe, but not like every time right? Um, and so that ordinary piece is actually doing more, whether or not you, like, name it. Um, and then I think also when you look at faith practice stuff, the overt stuff, pick what you like. <laughs> like, part of how you move out is you, you pick the ones you want to do. And if you're like, I feel like I should, don't. Like, seriously, skip it. Like, whatever it might be, you can totally skip it. Um, and that looks like a lot of things. And we have, like, my kids don't like children's Bibles, which is great because neither do I. Um, <laughs> but they like me telling them stories and they like to hear them in the car. So we don't have, like, a regular daily Bible time, but we often are in the car and they want to hear a story. That, they will age out of that eventually. But, like, I could fight that. I could try to make it every day. I could try to make it every bedtime. Like, I could. But I, what makes it ordinary is this is the space my kids are at their best and like this. So we do that. 
and we don't try to make ourselves do the other thing. So I hope that sort of speaks to that some. Okay, sorry, I'd like, okay, um, we'll go that way and then we'll go across. Got to correct it. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Uh huh. Yes, you do three things. You affirm the person because we never want our kid to feel like they have to choose between their caring adults or like rank them, right? So we always start with whoever that person is that said the thing or told the story or did the whatever that we wish they kind of wouldn't have done. We start by just affirming them. Like, we love them, or like, I love how you love doing this with them, or oh my gosh, isn't that so fun? You know, how you get to bake cookies with grandma today. She's. She's so great. I love her. Then you correct the content. And so then you move into like, you mentioned that you heard Noah's Ark and that it scared you that everybody died. <laughs> That's a scary kind of story. Um, I wondered if maybe I could talk to you about that a little bit more. And then you share like anything that is the appropriate correction. So that might be you retell the Bible story through the way you would like for them to hear it. Like, I actually noticed some other things in the story. Could I tell it to you again? Like Abraham and Isaac, where it's like, I hear it this way. Um, it could be that you, like, can't fix it, and you just need to say, like, I know they said that, but I actually think they're wrong about that. And that's okay, because we love them anyway, but I think it's important for you to hear that I don't think that's right, or I don't think that's true. I actually think this other thing. Um, that's also where, again, coming into the, with our, like, lots of people who love Jesus think differently about this. We actually don't have to agree, and that's okay. Um, so you affirm the person, you correct the content, then you close it with a question that takes it back to your kid. So if it's a really little kid, you um, might go from the correction and sort of, like, build on it through a question. So if I retell a Bible story the way I wish my kid would hear it, I might be like, what was your favorite part? And then the, you're entering into that story in the way you wish it would have been presented the first time, right? Um, as you get to an older kid, it can be more of like, what do you think about that? Or like, what did you notice? Or, you know, and so you can change the dialogue based on the age of the kid that you're trying to do the process with. But that's your big three movements. Affirm the kids so they know they're not suddenly like, no one's in trouble. You're not like mad at Aunt Jane for whatever she, like, correct the content either by taking another pass at it the way you wish it would be told or by simply saying, I don't think that's it and this is what I think is the better way to think about this, and then volley it back to a question because it helps model that we're going to keep on the conversation. It's not a one and done. Yeah. But yeah, sometimes it needs, to, it needs to happen. And then potentially you need to have a circle back with the person and like set a boundary with the grown-up, right? And so sometimes there's a circling back of like, hey, would you mind if I gave you a different kid's Bible for when they stay over, grandma and grandpa? And you find the most like gentle one you'd be okay with them reading instead, right? Phil Vischer's Laugh and Grow Bible. It's pretty benign. It's got like a little bit of moralism in it, but it's like, you know, it's pretty chill. It's not gonna like traumatize anybody. Like, could I buy that? And it stays at your house. Um, or like, you know, there's layers of boundaries depending on the layer of what we're dealing with, but you, you might need to circle back on that separately. Yeah.
What do you do with the part where all of this is actually very scary? Yeah. You name what scares you as honestly as you can. And try to be specific. Um, so that it's almost like you can list it out. Like, can you, can you see which pieces? Because then maybe that can help clarify a way forward in light of those specific concerns that are unique to you and your story. Um, I think you look then for, like if we're thinking about who we're gonna, what attributes we're anchoring for, what do you still have? Sure, God's more than those things, but maybe all you've got is, I think there's love. I think my kid's loved. You can work with just love for a real long time. Is there more to God? Of course. You can't get there? Fine. You got enough stories in Scripture that are just love when you're ready to tell them. But also, you could just pray for them. God, we thank you for kiddo. You love them so much. You love our family so much. Thanks that we're always loved all the time, no matter what. Amen. And that could be your only prayer for as many nights of bedtime as you need, right? You could find one song where the lyrics feel safe and you play that before bedtime because maybe praying out loud isn't a thing you do right now. For a long time, my cousin could only play, pray Psalm 23. I think still, several years deep into. It's the one I got. I can, I can say the Lord is my shepherd. She said every other prayer, in the, even in the Bible, she's like, just pisses me off. So she can't. <laughs> but you can go a long way on Psalm 23. There's a lot of lovely things about lying in pastures and being by waters and so on, right? And um, so I think there's more available in what isn't scary than we sometimes think. Because we know all the rest of it. We know that there's all these other doctrines and we know that there's all these stories and we know, like, but there's time. Like, there's, there's time for you and there's time for your kid in all of those things. Um, and if we can figure out what we just still have, then we can start. And the challenging part is, sadly, like doing nothing isn't totally neutral. So if we do think probably there's a trustworthy God, even though I'm having to do a lot of this unpacking to get to know them again, we wait too long and our kids aren't just there blank slate. Their suitcase doesn't sit there empty until you fill it. They'll have other people giving them input about who God is and what God's like. And that's everything from very different religious understandings of God to using the Bible. And it sounds really biblical, but we're meeting a God who is really not God at all. And so... The privilege and the scary part is as the parents, you've got the single most effective voice in who your kid will understand God to be. What you shape in your family is the thing that they are most likely to receive and hold on to. Your, your items in the suitcase matter more 
than anything that happens when they come to church or any other family members or any other experiences. And so you don't want to miss the chance to anchor in on the few things you got, even though there's a starting before you're ready. There's a bull fan there. Yeah. Yes. Um, okay, so partnering with parents, first of all, um, the weird thing when you're the church staff side is there are always some folks, none of y'all, who think that church attendance is a lot like a dry cleaner. Like you bring your like messed up kid and then they like could have them all clean and pressed an hour later. <laughs> and then on the other side is like a kid who's like never going to swear and like never going to have sex when they shouldn't and like, you know, and like, could you just do that for me? Um, and that's real hard. Uh, the biggest partnership a church can offer is to believe that the grown-ups, you know, might know a few things and aren't total idiots. Where youth ministry usually goes wrong is I'm young, I'm fun, I have energy, your kids like me. That must mean I know more than you. Don't treat parents like idiots. We're not, right? Um, so loop them in on what you're going to be saying. Loop them in on what you're going to be talking about. Um, especially more and more, like, parents aren't so sure they trust you to just go teach them whatever you're going to go teach in some other room that they don't hear about. So looping them in on the, you know, it's as simple as, like, you can have a newsletter system, right? This is what we're going to be covering. This is what we're going to be talking about. Um, you have an open policy of, like, you can always drop in anytime, right? And figure out what you need to do security-wise to make that happen, but, like, they can always come. Um, as to, like, how this stuff ages up, Fuller Youth Institute is like always my go-to because of a lot of how their research translates into more accessible resources um, and doesn't live in the world of academic. And so their recent project is called Three Big Questions That Shape Your Future, right? And so there's a whole lot of research behind that about kids sharing where they feel like church said, this is what matters, and I would like to be able to tell church this is what matters to me. And there's kind of a gap and a lot of it is like, you told me a bunch of Bible stories and doctrine-y things, but like, I don't know who I am or where I belong or what I'm about in the world. So helping provide Jesus-centered gospel in the rich sense answers about like who you really are in this like highly filtered sort of world and 
that you belong in the family of God no matter what, just because. And that purpose is not something you accomplish and that makes God happy. It's getting to become whoever God made you to be and we're here to help. Um, those are kind of the big three buckets that are unique to adolescence that coming alongside to say, and to say to families, these are the big three we help your kid explore. These are the, this is the core message we're gonna be sending to Echo with you all, that they're a beloved child of God no matter what, that they belong with us no matter how they, what they do, that they get to be whoever God made them to be and that is, they don't have to prove anything, that kind of thing. Yeah, yes. 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 Um, so I'm gonna, one question, how to, I think I'm gonna butt head with both my dad and my mom about this, how to do this well. Uh, and secondly, I'm going to, I have to have that conversation. We have to have that conversation. Yeah. And secondly, how do we, like, do we not talk about sin and hell mm. to our kids? Or, or yeah. you know, like, are our parents gonna freak out that we have, you know, gone off like, the edge with, you know? I mean, they might, but. <laughs> Yes, yes, yes. Okay. Uh, how do you navigate highly conservative understandings of sin and hell with the parent generation who would like to be very involved in the kid's life? Um, so, okay. How do you butt heads well? Try to get on the front end of the conversation. Uh, kids aren't around, obviously. Um, and it's, it's a very similar idea of, of what do you appreciate? Like, what are the good pieces of where you've come from as a family. What, what do you have about how you understand God because of them? That is, is there anything there that's a genuine, like, I'm grateful for this part. I really am, and I want you to hear that. Um, we're looking down the road at what we do with kiddo as it comes to helping them get to know Jesus. And, and the fact is we just know that we see things a little bit differently on some of this stuff now. And we want that to be okay. We're not asking you to change your mind but we are asking you to sort of line up with us and be on our team about a couple of these things. And so in particular, we really don't want kiddo hearing about hell because we don't want them afraid and running away from something. We really think that running to Jesus is gonna be enough. And so we're really trying to focus on helping them get to know God because we, we trust God's love and we trust how God's magnetic. And so it would really mean a lot to us if you could just hold off on that entirely. And we know that's not what you would do if it was your choice. But it would mean a lot to us in terms of being on, on our team for how we help our kids get to know God. Um, in particular with hell, even if you think that's how things are, if you think hell's real and that's true, I still don't think you should tell it to kids because it's scary and you you cannot have, like fear cannot grow in faith. Other way around. Faith can't grow in fear. I'm getting tired. <laughs> faith doesn't grow under, if, with fear. Uh, fear will create a lot of reactive decisions in children. 
And then when they grow into being able to reflect on that fear, they will feel very resentful that adults did that to them. So even if you think that's true, you still don't need to be doing that with children because you can grow into that at a point where they could take on those ideas better anyway. So that to me, I think, would be an informing piece of like, we disagree, but also like, we don't want them afraid. We want them falling in love with a God who loves them. That's what we're pointing towards. Um, sin is an interesting one with kids because I do think we talk about sin, but probably not the way that maybe some of our more conservative friends or family do, which is to say um, it is not that sin is every single individual action and you like sort it, sinful and not sinful, sinful and not sinful. But kids see that the world is a mess. They see capital S sin and its effects. They see that things are not equal. They see that people suffer. They see that there's pain. They see all of these ripples that come from getting disconnected from a God who not only establishes our belovedness, but tells us we treat one another in certain ways and care for the world in certain sort of ways. And so saying, oh yeah, the Bible has a word for that, it's sin. It's, it's anything that isn't what God wants because God wants a world that works in a way that matches who God is. So it's compassionate and abundant and loving. And as people get disconnected from their own belovedness, it goes all kinds of sideways. And the good news is that because of Jesus, that's not how the world's always gonna work. Kids need to know that God cares about that stuff and wants to do something about it. Um, and so that's where the conversation about sin is incredibly important, that it interprets hard things and helps them understand where God is in that, namely that God is with them and on our team to see sin and its effects made right and defeated, um, which is very different than like the bridge analogy, right, where like here's God and here's me and sin means we're separated, which also is completely bogus, and so you're, gonna, like, you're not going to agree on that, <laughs> which also means you might find yourself having to talk more about it to be seeding the kinds of ideas you think are healthy, the kind that help point to like the definitions you want to be operating in your family. Um, but it is totally reasonable to ask like that parents not call developmentally appropriate behavior sinful, like tantrums right? And I think part of the language with a, a family member could be, we're really thinking a lot about the name tag our kid wears when it comes to faith. Who do they most think they are? We want them to know that they wear a name tag of like beloved image bearer child of God. And it would really feel like you were on our team if we didn't accidentally, we're going to say accidentally just to be nice, put like the name tag sinner on our kid. Not because we don't think they're going to get caught up in sin and its effects. That's what it does. We all are part of it. That's not what we're saying. We're just saying we don't want them wearing a name tag sinner and feeling ashamed when God is more powerful than that. Because that's the part of all of this is like, wait a minute, isn't there a God that can defeat sin and take over? Like, so why do I have to wear that badge? This God you're telling me is so lovely. Um, but that idea of like, we're not, we're not saying it doesn't matter. We're just saying we care who our kid thinks they most are. So that would probably be another piece to bring in. Yeah. Back. Uh, what would you say to parents who have junior or senior kids who are 
Yeah. So, like, the student is not all that interested in church right now? Oh, yeah, then don't make them come to church. Yeah, no, don't do that. <laughs> no, no, no. This is the thing about, like, there's so many practices. So if the church one isn't jiving right now, like, especially with teens, what would? There's a hundred awesome podcasts. Want to listen to one together and we can, I'll buy you coffee. Tell me what you liked about it. There's all kinds of great books. I'll read one with you. We can talk about it. There's, um, Gary Thomas has a book. It's been around for a long time called Sacred Pathways. That one for teens is so, I mean, it's helpful for parents too that are trying to reimagine what they do. It's so helpful because teens are beginning to figure out what, what their pathways are. Like if you're a nature person, there is a intentional meeting God in nature kind of rhythm. You could start working into your life, teenager, because you have a little more freedom. Or if you are a like artistic type, there are some like bring that to life in a faith sort of way on purpose kinds of practices. And so it doesn't have to be church attendance. Like at some point they could come back. If it, but, but forcing a teenager into a faith practice is a surefire way to make them think that it's on the do and don't list and that God cares more about that behavior than like who they're becoming. So let them off the hook. Yes. How do, how do I approach teaching that story? Yeah. Yes. Okay, so we've got a whole bunch of stories in the Bible that did not literally happen, and that doesn't mean they're not true, because just to say that Scripture is literal, or I'm sorry, literature, does not mean that Scripture is fiction. Those are different. And it's so much fun. It's so fun. Because you get to just, so this is the thing about our suitcases. I got all my stuff over here where I was told it was all literal. And now you've told me all these things about genres. And now I don't know what I put in their suitcase. But your kids don't have your baggage. And you don't have to give it to them. And so you get to do things like tell them what genre a story is before they ever get introduced to the story. Right? So, um, so eventually my kids were old enough where I was like, oh, I haven't told you the Jonah parable no, I haven't told you the Jonah parable. Oh, let me tell you, because right, Jesus told parables, but then the Old Testament has parables too that pointed to things that were really important for God's people to understand about who they were and what they were like. Like this one time where there's this guy named Jonah and this is what happens and here is a fish and look at how the fish is like Jesus and da 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 Now, you might still go literal Jonah. That's fine. That's not the point. But you can start with, this is this kind of story. When I tell my kids Genesis, like, so the Genesis writer gave us a poem that said, God made these containers and then God filled them up over and over again so that God would say it was good. And my 10-year-old is in the like, also science. I'm like, yep, both. Because we have a poet telling us that God made the world in this lovely orderly sort of way in a culture that really valued order and chaos and that's what made a God good. And we have science. That's great. Cool, cool. Two different genres doing two different jobs. So you just get to tell them like the genre that it is from the jump, which is way more fun. Um, you also can paraphrase. I think this is one of the tricky things about finding resources is that in order to get published, a kid's Bible has to include a lot more because that's what sells. 
conservatives buy more kids' Bibles and conservative publishers have more money. So you get to be the paraphraser of the pieces of the story that you're like, I'm not saying this is not important to an adult reader, but I am going to skip it right now for my kid to not make it more confusing than it needs to be too early. Not because you're trying to hide something in the Bible from them, but just because you know where they're at with their age, right? Um, a lot of times a really helpful thing is not only to tell them it's a poem, it's a parable, it's a whatever, but to also say things about what you know about the culture, right? So if you say, well, the storyteller at the time, there's all these other gods and everyone's trying to figure out what they're like. So this storyteller wants us to see something unique about Yahweh God. And that's why they told it like this. To help with the idea that it's happening in a culture and a context, right? So you, you share some of the insights that bring a story to life of like, why is that story weird? Um, conquest narratives are one of these, right? Where they get told a lot to kids and usually because we sort of assume like battles are neat or whatever. Um, but... John Walton's stuff, if you're familiar with John Walton, he does a lot of really neat work on um, just how we sort of understand the literary styles that come into scripture. He has one that's called The Lost World of Ancient Near Eastern Conquest, I think, if I remember it right. But part of his point is that, like, when, you're, when your nation wins a battle, it's a sign your God is better and stronger. And so there's a genre for battle stories that's hyperbolic. And, like, the idea that your enemy is like a barbarian from wherever is like part of the genre. And everyone else would have known that. So you can say to kids like, oh, you know, they told the story in this style because everyone told war stories like that. So everyone knew that it was kind of an exaggeration, not because they're trying to lie to you, but because they're telling a battle story. And it's how you tell a battle story. And this is how it goes. And then you tell it to them. Um, those are not going to like weaken a kid's trust in the Bible is valuable. They're going to make it so that you've given them something at their level now that you can build on later. And they're going to be like, oh, when I learn this as an adult, I'm not going to have to go back and be like, what the actual were you saying to me about this story before? That's not what it's about at all. <laughs> so yeah, you actually can totally go there. It's very fun. Yeah. I think if you're, but you know you want them to, yes. Um, how would you incorporate Christianity in your life when you're struggling yourself and you know you'd like them to? Start small. Um, and even like, this might be a little bit rigid of an exercise, but like thinking through, naming all your options for like what that could look like. Okay, I want them to, so there's, prayer, there's being part of a faith community, there's doing scripture stories, there's starting to get more involved in service, there's doing, like, that you can literally name all the options and just filter through, like, two that feel the most, like, accessible for the real life that you have in the season that you're in. And it's not that the other ones aren't important someday, but you don't have to burden yourself with, like, what you believe to be the most spiritual practice or the one you were told counted the most, yeah. right? Um, for kids, a big part of what is most helpful is that we treat God 
like a real person in the mix. However you do that, that's the thing. It's the idea that like, almost like a family member, that's like really part of things. That, that is the thing that helps begin to, to orient any other part of like, oh, we do Bible stories or oh, we do church or whatever. It's this idea that like, well, there's like a real person that we are getting to know and care about as opposed to, um, like my kids I realized at one point very late on uh, didn't know what the word Christian meant because <laughs> like we never talk about it. <laughs> we talk about God, we talk about Jesus, but we like didn't worry about like how we label a system. And so it like came up in a in a fourth grade curriculum because you do state stuff and we're in California, so the missionization of California is our curriculum, right? And so they wanted to spread Christianity was in the textbook. And I was like, oh, no, they did not. <laughs> they wanted to use Christianity for power. And he's like, what is that? It's like, oh, yeah, no, that's us. We're, we're those. We're, that's us. <laughs> but there's like a lot of vocabulary that we just don't use, right? We just talk normal and um, that we don't have to worry about using. Like they don't have to have this whole religiosity vocab. You can drop out all of it and just go simpler. Yeah. Yes. That's where open conversation, because they can. Um, the myth is that sharing your own struggles or doubts or deconstruction process will hurt their faith, and you don't want to make it worse. You want to give them their own space, and you want to, you know, and there's wisdom to that in a broad sense. There really is. But in general, especially for adolescents, being in cultures that have more space for doubt and question and uncertainty has been correlated to having stronger faith as they move into their adult years. Which makes sense when you start to lean into, it shows that our faith isn't fragile. It shows that God will let them take as much time as they need. If this is all who is God and what is God like as the parent, God is a God who is compassionate towards the deconstruction process. In fact, God is the God who is probably cheering you on because in the middle of that process, you got to know not God. And the true God is probably there being like, yes, drop that part. I can't wait for you to know me because you're not stuck on thinking I'm like that. God is the God who is not rushing us and is infinitely patient. So you become an ambassador of these attributes that might take a long time for you or your kiddo to sort of come back to feeling like they're true. But more space for doubts and questions and I'm not sure and all of that, that has always been a helpful thing for adolescents and faith. Everything being tidy and answerable, they see through it. They're smart. They understand that it's not like that. And so that can be overt. Like, hey, I just really appreciate being able to hear from you about the process. If I haven't said it in a while, I hope you know you can take like all the time you need. Not just because we think that as your parents who love you, but like, I really think any God worth trusting understands that you need time. And so you name for them from time to time, like, I hope you know this is such an important process. These are such good, worthy questions. And 
you're not the only one to have wondered about them, but that doesn't make it any easier, right? You just are encouraging that nothing has to get solved or settled because our faith is not so fragile as that, right? Our, Our faith is not this like heirloom that has like sat on the shelf in your home and sat on the shelf of your grandmother before and the grandmother before that, and they've each passed it down to you intact and whole and hold it carefully and don't you dare drop it. Like, that isn't how faith works. Like, our faith is clay and mud that we are, like, digging into and trying to figure out, do I form something useful out of this? And is there refreshing water that could live inside of it once it's done? Oh, that didn't work. I'm throwing it down again. Like, it's not an heirloom. And so you get to, like, model that because that's going to help for, like, their whole life long. There's also a book that I don't know if it's still on the market anymore. Uh, Lynn Hybels, Bill Hybels' wife, so like I know that's complicated, but she wrote a little book called Nice Girls Don't Change the World. It doesn't matter if it's a girl or a boy reading it. It's a tiny little memoir about her completely bailing on God for a decade and how she found her way back, well before deconstruction language was kind of in the water to help us give some naming to what we were experiencing. And it's just her story, and it doesn't have a lot of agenda, and it's not like a tidy bow. Um, I read it when I was like 20, it was, it's a helpful one if you've got like the teen young adult age of just like someone telling a story um, in all of that. So, and because they're teenagers, they won't know who she is. So you just don't have to tell her that part and like leave the family out of it. <laughs> all right. Okay. Um, let me double check that I didn't have anything else that I was going to say to y'all. I was going to say this, uh, whether it's packing and unpacking, whether it's weaving spider webs, uh, inevitably there's change in the process, right? Like it just comes with the territory. And when you think about spider webs in particular, like there's breakage always. Threads break, stick gets caught, bug flies through. But the whole thing's not destroyed. The spider didn't fail. It's not all hope is lost now. They reweave the section. They go back to that one spot. They focus their attention there for a while. It's usually stronger on the other side because of it. But the other things they can hold on to, the other strands that have been anchored in place, keep it there while they go tend to that one place. One of the limitations, I think, of the deconstruction, reconstruction language, the building metaphors, and they're helpful, they are, but one of the limitations of a building metaphor is what you do with change, breakage, and loss. Because eventually it feels like you're standing in rubble and you have no energy to rebuild. And one of the helpful things about moving towards some of these other metaphors too is that they assume there's gonna be change. Things that you thought were true or your kid thought was true, some point's going to break. They're going to learn something new or something's not going to work for them anymore. And you get to be there to be like, that's okay. We'll turn our attention to that one spot and we'll figure out how to reweave something. We'll go learn something new or we'll carry these questions or we'll go figure out what we want to do next. You're not trying to do something where you take your suitcase and you get your perfect packing list and you get your kids set up just right and they're gonna carry off the exact right thing and they're never gonna question it and they're never gonna change and they're never gonna go through what you went through in terms of reexamining faith. It's not gonna be like that. 
what you're trying to do is build a relationship where you pack them as healthy as you can, and then someday they're going to turn around and unpack, and you're going to be like, yeah, I'll be with you in that. I did my best. You can chuck that. You do your thing. Right? We can work with them and expect change and flex, and that's not a bad thing. In fact, developmentally, there's this thing called moratorium. It's this phase that is generally like a late adolescent, early adulthood thing. So they talk about how kids start in what's called faith um, foreclosure. And no, there's a phase before foreclosure. The phase before that I can't remember uh, is the one where you just receive everything you get like a sponge and you just believe it because adults you like told you it was true, right? That goes through about mid-teen years when you move into foreclosure, which is like this lockdown, all those adults said it, and it's working for me and I'm a teenager and I like everything black and white and so I'm just going to like double down. Then you have this moratorium phase, which is the suitcase opening. It is everything pauses and everything gets opened up and everything gets revisited. It's a totally normal part of faith formation. It's actually expected for maturity. It's really important. And it usually happens right in that like 18 to 23 range. It should at least. Now that's when then everything gets sifted out and you get to the other side of faith to a fourth stage its name is escaping me as well because time zones, which is this integrated... I have chosen what I believe, may not be forever and always, but I'm kind of settled in, it was my choice. I had a chance to look at it. I'm gonna live with this stuff for now. I've sifted through what was handed to me and know what I wanna hold on to. Sounds a lot like the way people talk about deconstruction right now. But I think that one of the things that happened is for a long time, especially in certain faith cultures, we actually thought it would be a good thing to stick everyone in foreclosure forever and that that was solid faith. For them to just be locked down with like the right things to believe. And then you get a whole bunch of us that are mid-aged that are doing moratorium now when we ought to have been allowed to do it a long time ago. And adults in our life ought to have welcomed it and helped us unpack those suitcases as we were becoming adults for the first time, but they didn't. So now we got to do it ourselves later on. But what you get to do is say, okay, I'm going to walk with these kids through childhood and then I'm going to expect moratorium to come. And all these tools we have that we ask questions, that we look at stories in their genre and we expect them to be cool and confusing, that we take our time and we know that God is patient. Those are all going to be skills you have as a family for the inevitable time when they revisit whatever you told them yourself. And you'll be like, that's cool. That's, we're going to go through that again. We're going to draw on our family warmth and the adults we know and all these things you've cultivated. Because you're not trying to get them to lock down into a set of beliefs. You're trying to equip them to be in an ongoing getting to know God forever and always, over and over. So that was the last thought I wanted to offer y'all. I'm going to pray for you. I will stick around. Thank you for your time on a Sunday afternoon. That is a challenging time. In my family, everyone falls asleep right about 1.30, usually while soccer is on the TV, but no one's actually watching it. So thank you. I'm really, really appreciative of you all taking the time out of your day. And God, we ask that um, for the adults that are here, would they find themselves able to just trust you? And if they need time to figure out if you're trustworthy, would you give them that time and space and grace? And for the kids that are represented by these adults, we ask that they would know how much you love them, they would come to know you more deeply, that they too would have a childhood with lots of time and space and grace for the process. A childhood that respects who they are as unique individuals. And we pray that their faith journeys would be marked by support and curiosity and wonder and welcoming change because it means that there's growth. 
And so we bless them in your name. Amen.